Well, hey, good morning. How you doing? It is um, really good to be back in this room with you in person, worshiping. Um, I was thinking last night, I mentioned this last night as I was um, teaching, the last time I was at a service in this room um, was Easter. And y'all weren't here because we were already shut down. And uh, it was just me. I was the only person at church. And uh, it felt weird. We live in unusual times, don't we? And for those of you who are tuning in online, I appreciate you tuning in as well. If you've chosen that lane in this season, we get that. We're just glad that you're listening. And what we want to do this morning is really simple. If you're visiting with us um, or if you're just out of practice and have forgotten, what we do is we get together and we open God's Word and we work through a passage and we look at what it says, what it's teaching, and then we try to make application to our lives. So the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is Luke 4. I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles, get Luke 4 in front of you. Um, and then for those of you who are at home, I just want to make sure that you remember, we're going to close this service with communion. And um, everything that I'm going to be teaching is preparing our hearts for that moment where we can celebrate together as the church, as the people of God, um, communion at the end of this service. So be preparing for that. But we're going to open to Luke 4. I'm going to pick it up in verse 14. Look at what it says. It says this in Luke 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee... And a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, verse 15, being glorified by all. So what I need to do as we jump into this text is I need to get you caught up a little bit in what we've been teaching this fall. We taught, we have started a series called The Way, The Truth, and The Life, and we are looking at the life of Jesus, bouncing kind of from gospel to gospel so that we can study his life in somewhat of a chronological order. And where we are as we go into Luke 4 is... Um, Jesus has been baptized, he's gone into the wilderness, he's been tempted, he went up into Galilee just for a short time, attended a wedding in Cana, we preached on that a few weeks ago, and then what happened is he goes down to Judea. So the northern part of Israel is considered Galilee, it's rural, think farming, think agriculture, smaller cities. This is actually where Jesus was born, his hometown is in Nazareth. And then he goes down into Jerusalem, kind of the more populated areas for a very, very...
about other encounters, other miracles, other healings that Jesus was doing, but this is the day that he's going to spend over 20 verses focusing on. So I think there's something very, very important in this story that Luke wanted us to see. I think he's going to reveal in this story what the gospel is, what it demands, why many will reject it, and why some receive it. I think he's going to do those four things, though it would actually make a really, really good outline for this section of scripture, but I didn't come up with those four points until I said them last night, and so we're going to stick with the outline I got, okay? So if you're keeping notes at home or if you're keeping them here, here's the first point that I want to hit. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority. This is the first thing that I want you to see. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So this is the city where Jesus is raised. It is a small rural farming community in central Galilee. Galilee is kind of a nothing region, and this is a small town in the middle of nowhere. It's interesting. As he comes home, there's excitement that Jesus is back in his hometown. The people have heard the stories coming from the surrounding cities and the communities. They are excited to welcome back their local hero. So, True confessions. Um, my wife and I used to enjoy watching a show. It was called American Idol. Don't judge me, okay? But one of the things with American Idol is every season, somewhere near the end of the show, they'd be down to just two or three final contestants, and they would have a hometown week. Do any of you guys remember this from the show? Ah, some people were actually willing to raise their hands and admit that you watched American Idol too. Okay, so when you did these homecoming weeks, there was something very interesting. You could see this every year. The smaller the town, the greater the excitement. If somebody came from Dallas or they came from LA and they were going back to their hometown, nobody really cared because it was a big city and they just got lost in the crowd. If they went to a small town or they grew up in a small farming community, like the whole town showed up, the mayor would dress up, they would call it Kelly Clarkson Day and they'd give her the keys to the city and I'm just telling you the smaller the city the more excited people are when there's a hometown hero right if if an American idolist finalist came out of Nunica um like the whole town would gather at Turks I promise you that's what would happen right so, so you kind of get an idea of the enthusiasm as Jesus returns to his small hometown. I was really trying to create a sense of context for you guys to understand this, but it's difficult because we kind of come from an area of small towns too. Back in 2016, MLive did a, um, an article. It was interesting. They went through the state of Michigan and they picked the most famous person from every county. So I've got the results of that. If you're from Muskegon County, uh, 2016 MLive, who did they pick as the most famous person to ever come out of the entire county of Muskegon? Anybody know? Anybody know? No, that's a good guess. A football player, but that's not him. Anybody else got a guess? What's, give me a name. Nope, not Tim Allen. Nope, they chose the famous Iggy Pops, or Iggy Pop, there he is. Now, Iggy Pop, he was famous. He started a band. It was called Iggy Pop and the Stooges. And Iggy is actually known as the godfather of punk. So I don't know if many of you knew that Iggy Pop actually started in Muskegon. And if you guys are big into punk rock, this is like good news for you, right? 
So, so the funny thing is I did a little bit of research on Iggy because, you know, this is important sermon prep, right? And uh, he was only born in Muskegon. He actually grew up on the east side of the state. So, like, you guys don't even have a real great claim to this guy. That's like the only picture I could find where he was actually wearing a shirt. And if you don't think he's a um, good choice for the most popular person to ever come out of Muskegon County, you would be pleased to know that the runner-up is televangelist Jim Baker. So if you're from Muskegon County, you got that going for you. Uh, How about Ottawa County? What do you think in Ottawa County here? Who's the most famous person to ever come out of Ottawa County? No. What's that? No. Nope. Put up a picture, see if any of you guys recognize this. Anybody recognize who that is? That's Garrett Bournes. I got a strong yes from somebody who is into indie alternative rock, okay? So, so Garrett Bournes is a kid that went to Grand Haven High School. I think he graduated in 2009 or 2010. Very, very talented musician. He's kind of in that indie alternative rock Um, kind of genre of music. He has had two big hits that have reached number two on the billboards. He wrote Electric Love, and his other song was Dopamine. So we've got Iggy Pop and Garrett um, Bournes. Now listen, I'm not dissing on them as musicians. Jesus is Messiah. There's not a lot of comparison. I can't get you a point of reference to tell you how excited the city of Nazareth would have been for Jesus to return home and preach in their synagogue. And it says in verse 16, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Verse 14, he'd already been throughout the rest of Galilee speaking in their synagogues and the response of the people was they glorified him. It's not that they liked what he said. It's not that they thought he was pretty good. They glorified him. He was being accepted as Messiah. Verse 17, as Jesus stands up in his home synagogue in Nazareth, it says he took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendants and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. A couple things of note. What Jesus did, did, just said in reading from the prophet Isaiah and saying, this has been fulfilled in your midst, don't miss this. He just claimed to be God. He has authority. You don't get to decide if Jesus is an authority. He is an authority, whatever you decide. And Jesus just declared that he was God. What happens in a uh, service at a synagogue is they would typically... Um, recite some scripture together, there would be some worship, they would have some scripture reading, and then the preacher would give a message. Jesus has read the scripture from Isaiah 61, and then he's given a one-sentence message. This has been fulfilled in your presence today. I know what some of you are thinking. I wish you preached a little more like Jesus. (laughs) Um, Just so you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke also record times where he preached all day, so be careful what you wished for. And quite honestly, I'm kind of with you. I kind of wish I preached like Jesus too. How remarkable would that day have been? So all the eyes are fixed on him. He has just declared 
by saying that the prophet in Isaiah, see, see Isaiah gave a prophecy to a nation that was in rebellion because they'd fallen into idolatry and they were following lousy leaders. And he warned them, he said, God's gonna come and judge, God's gonna come and judge. And that's the major portion of Isaiah, but near the end of the book, what he does is he says, though God's going to bring judgment on the nation of Israel because of their poor choices and their sinfulness, there is a day coming where he's going to send a Messiah, a redeemer, a deliverer, not just a man from God, but God himself that will rescue the nation from its captivity. And Jesus has just said, hey, when you read that, you know what Isaiah was talking about? I'm that guy. Jesus is an authority. It's interesting. Some people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. I find that remarkable because in this passage, he just did. And beyond Jesus declaring that he was God, you need to know that the men that knew him the most, his disciples, would go to their grave claiming he was God. And that's not hyperbole, they did. The Roman soldier who helped crucify Jesus looked at the man that he had crucified and said, surely this must be the Son of God. And maybe most remarkable throughout the Gospels, the demons declare that Jesus is God. We see this over and over. All you have to do is look down a couple verses in this chapter. Look at verse 34 in Luke 4. Jesus is casting out a demon, and as the demon comes out of, Jesus, or out of the man who he had possessed, it says, I know who you are, speaking of Jesus, the Holy One of God. Seven verses later in verse 41, Jesus is again casting demons out of people. It says, the demons also came out of many, crying, you are the Son of God. So the demons understand that Jesus is an authority, but here's what's interesting. If you look at both of those accounts in verse 34 and verse 41 of chapter 4, the next thing Jesus says is he rebukes the demons, tells them, quit declaring that I am the Son of God. Why would Jesus do that? And let me suggest to you this morning that the reason that Jesus rebukes the demons from declaring that he is the Son of God, it is not their job to deliver the gospel. The job of delivering the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is given to those who are willing to accept Jesus as their authority. That is the qualification for giving the gospel. I might have a little more to say on that later, okay? And then here's the second thing. Not only does Jesus proclaim to be an authority, I want you to see what he said in the text, but here I want you to see what he didn't say. This is interesting. Jesus, in verse 19, he quits quoting from Isaiah with this phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he stops. But if you go back to Isaiah 61, the first two verses, they read like this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. In the Hebrew, that's one sentence, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of his favor, and that he's coming with vengeance. Jesus doesn't quote the last half of the sentence. Why not? Think he forgot the end of the verse? I don't think so. Think he thought the prophets were wrong? Doubt it. What Jesus is saying, that as he stands in Nazareth this day, that this is a day of restoration, this is a day of good news, the day of the Lord's favor, and there is a day that will come later where he will come with vengeance. And here's what this means, that today is the day of salvation. 
We live in the day of salvation, which is why in Hebrews and in other parts of the New Testament, we continue to hear the gospel proclaimed with urgency. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts because Jesus came in his first visitation for the purposes of healing, to bring good news that we can be saved. Jesus is coming again. We could spend a lot of time this morning talking about when that will happen, right? But when he comes again, he's coming again as judge with vengeance to fulfill the latter part of Isaiah's prophecy. That time is fast approaching and I would just pause even in the middle of this message and understand what Jesus is offering today is salvation. That offer will not always be on the table. Are you ready? Are you ready? The people of Nazareth thought that they were ready and they wanted both of these. You'll see this in a minute. And Jesus pauses and says, understand this is the day of the Lord's favor. Verse 22, I want you to see how the people responded to Jesus after he had read from Isaiah and given a message. They said, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And here's the only thing I want you to see. They were with Jesus. They were fans of Jesus. They were in marveling. They were like, could it be that Messiah, the promised deliverer, is actually going to come from our town and they said, is this not Joseph's son? You need to hear this in its context. They're looking. They knew Jesus. He'd grown up right there. They knew that he had been the son of this carpenter. They're saying, he hasn't been trained as a rabbi. How can a man that we've known since childhood speak with the power and authority in which he's speaking? This is the thing as Jesus moves around Galilee in his ministry that astounded people wherever he went. Matthew 7, verse 28, it says, When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who has authority and not as their scribes. Mark says in Mark 1, 21, And when he was in Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Luke 4 Verse 31, just later in this same chapter, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath and they were astonished at his teaching for his words possessed authority as he cast out demons. Verse 36, and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands even the unclean spirits and they come out. They're saying how profound, how incredible, what, an in, what a remarkable thing that God might choose to send his Messiah, his deliverer, to this boy that we knew as he grew up in Nazareth. Jesus says in verse 23, Jesus says to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. I want you to see two words in this because they're so often missed. Jesus has just changed the time frame the reference, the people in the immediate, they're marveling, they're astonished, they're with Jesus, they speak well of him. And as this is happening, Jesus says, that's what you feel now, don't get ahead of yourself, because you will say, physician, heal yourself. And the crowd's going to turn on Jesus in about 10 minutes. I want you to see what happens. Number two, 
Jesus is an authority. Here's the second point, broken expectations. Look at verse 24. Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Look at verse 28. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Okay, what just happened? A minute ago, they spoke well of him, and then Jesus says something, and all of a sudden, they are filled with wrath, as the text said. The one that they admired, they now disdained. The one that they marveled at, they now wanted to murder. What in the world did Jesus just say to create this level of hostility? Did he tell them to wear masks? (laughs) I know, I got to be careful here, right? We can laugh at ourselves a little bit, can't we? I digress. I want you to look at what Jesus just said because I think that it's important. To understand what happened, you need to understand what the people in Galilee and throughout Israel expected in the promised Messiah, the promised deliverer. The people had focused on all the prophecies about Messiah that he was going to come and restore Israel to its rightful place. When Jesus said today, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing, here's what they were hearing. Jesus is going to take those of us who are poor and we're not going to be poor anymore. Jesus is going to come and he's going to overthrow Rome and end the oppression. Messiah is going to save the good guys and punish the bad guys. They believe that there's going to be an uprising, there's going to be a political movement that insurrection will come with Messiah and that they will overthrow Rome and goodness will be restored to their lives. They're looking for a Messiah who's going to bring the thunder. He's going to come with vengeance in his eyes and destroy their enemies. And behind that belief, you need to understand the underlying thing that they believed. They believed that they were the good guys. Hear me. What they wanted was a hero. They weren't looking for a savior. And there's a difference between a hero and a savior. A hero comes, you guys have all seen all the Marvel movies, right? A hero comes, he shows up on the scene, and what does he do? He saves the good guys and he punishes the bad guys. That's what a hero does. That's what they wanted. The problem was what they got instead of a hero was they got a savior who had come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus says, before that day comes when I bring vengeance, when I show up, not only as Savior and hero in this this visitation, I need to bring healing first. But the problem was the people didn't know that they needed to be healed. They didn't know that they needed to be a physician, which is why Jesus has just said to them, you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. And when you don't realize that you're sick, when you view yourself as the good guys, you pray for a hero not a savior. The response was, in essence, we're not sick. The problem is the other guys. Go squash them. Be our hero. And I want you to look very carefully at what Jesus said that incited such rage. 
The first story that he tells is from the Old Testament. It's from 1 Kings 17. I won't take the time to turn there. But the point that he's making is this. He says that in the days of Israel, there was a famine in the land and there were many children and women dying. And Jesus sent the prophet Elijah to a specific widow. And in doing so, he provided for her and saved the life of this woman and her child. But here's the important start part of the story, the part that enraged them. The woman wasn't an Israelite. She was Phoenician. She was from Sidon. And then he tells another story from the Old Testament that was from 2 Kings 5 of a man by the name of Naaman. To make matters worse, Naaman wasn't just a foreigner. We're told in the text that he was the commander of the Syrian army who came down with leprosy. Now, leprosy, there was an outbreak of it throughout the regions of Israel and Syria. And God sends his prophet Elijah, and Elijah chooses to heal the general of the Syrian army. Are you starting to understand why the Israelites would have been enraged if they believed that Jesus was going to be a political savior? These are not the people of Nazareth's favorite stories from the Old Testament. And as Jesus shows up on the scene, the people are starting to come to grips with the fact that Jesus is not going to be the Messiah that they expected and he's not going to save who they thought he would save. With the appearance of Jesus dies the idea of an ethnocentric gospel. He's not just coming to save Israel, but it'll be sung to us in the book of Revelation that Jesus has come to save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, more so than even ethnic diversity. If you go back to the prophecy of Isaiah 61, Jesus just didn't come to save people from different nations, but he came to save people with broken pasts and messed up presence. He's coming to save those who need a physician, who know that they're lost, who aren't looking for a hero, but a savior. And Jesus is contrasting the people that he is coming to save with the people that he is talking to and it puts them into rage. Look at their response. Here's the third point if you're keeping notes. The response is this. No Messiah is better than Jesus. As I read that, even as I was thinking about this before I preached this morning, I said that's a really lousy point. Because you could go back a year from now if you found this note somewhere in your notes and you would say no Messiah is better than Jesus. Like, who could be better than Jesus? Like, that's an affirmative statement. That's not what they were saying. Their response was, we would rather have no Messiah than what Jesus is offering. Look at what it says in verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Heroes do what we want them to do. They rescue on our terms. In believing that they were the good guys, they acted through their obedience as if God owed them something, that God was in their debt. We're the good guys. You owe it to us to save us. And underneath the veneer of their religion lived hostility towards God. It's interesting in the stories that Jesus, is, Jesus referenced, I'm going to put a couple of these verses on the screen. Let's look at the story of the widow first. Elijah is sent by God 
And God says, go to the widow from Sidon who's starving because of the famine, her and her son. And when you get there, ask her to make you a bread, or some bread, make you a meal. So that's what Elijah does. He goes to the woman and says, make me some bread. The woman goes, I'll read it from you. I was going to just go off on a riff there. But 1 Kings 17, 12 says, here's her response. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. You get the desperation in the circumstances. I'm out of food. Me and my son are going to die. And God sends a prophet and says, make me a meal. How do you think she felt about that? Can you sense it in the text? The prophet asks her to do something that she can't possibly understand that seems completely unreasonable. But look what the text says. And she went and did as Elijah said. And you know what followed that decision to do what God asked her to do when she didn't understand it? Provision through the rest of the family. She knew the blessing of God when she chose to be obedient to the thing that God asked her to do. The same is true in the story of the Syrian general Naaman. Reading from 2 Kings 5 verse 10, it says, And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. Now, no, no, Elisha sent a messenger. This is an important guy. This is a visiting dignitary, and he's ticked because he can't believe that Elijah wouldn't meet with him face to face. And it says, but Naaman was angry, and he went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the, uh, the place and cure the leper. Okay, here's what Naaman has just said. God's not doing this the way that I expected him to. The circumstances that I'm finding myself in, I had envisioned how God would respond and he's not living up to my expectations. And he goes on and he says, are not Abana and Farfar, great names, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Here's what he just said. We got way better rivers than Damascus. He's making me go to the creek that is this muddy creek, this Jordan River. I would have been better staying home. So he turned and left in a rage. Verse 13, but the servants came near to him and said, my father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said, wash and be clean. They're like, hey, I think you missed the big part. He said he'd heal you. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Here's what I would say. You submit to God's authority, not just when you agree with what he's asking you to do. As long as an authority is only an authority and as long as you will only submit when he lives up to your expectations, I would say it this way. If you will only submit to an authority when you agree with what he's asking you to do, who's the real authority? And I'm going to press it a little bit farther. It is hard to make an argument that Jesus is an authority in your life if you will not submit to the authorities that he's placed in your life. In less than two weeks, Americans will vote for our next president. 
Kristen and I voted early. We voted last Friday. But in two weeks, this whole election thing will be over, though we probably won't know who won for a little while longer. Who knows, right? I don't know when we'll know the results, but here's what I know. If Donald Trump wins the election, we will honor his leadership and follow his authority as long as we can, but ultimately our authority is Jesus Christ, and that is where we will place our hope. And if Joe Biden wins the election, we will honor the position that he has, and we will follow and submit to his leadership as long as we can for the sake of the gospel, but ultimately ultimately we submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, and we will consider neither man our hero, because all honor and authority belongs to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me close with this, one more point. I, I labeled it this, there's an interesting foreshadowing I think going on in this text, and as we prepare for communion, I want you to see this. I, I don't really have a big idea this morning, I just have a big question for you. I think we have to apply this text to ourselves And the question that I would ask you is simply this. Are you looking for a hero or a savior? Are you looking for a hero or a savior? And the tell, the the thing that will indicate which one you're looking for, who you're willing to follow is this. When a crisis point comes in our faith and when we are asked to do something by Jesus, by God, that we are not comfortable with, that catches us off guard, will we submit to the authority or will we rebel and do what we think is best? Jesus comes home to Nazareth. The people are excited. They accept him as Messiah. He says some hard things they weren't expecting, and they respond with rage. Less than two years later, Jesus will enter Jerusalem. He will ride in on the back of a donkey to the adulation and worship of the people of Jerusalem who will lay palm branches in his path and they will say things like Hosanna, King of the Jews, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But over the course of less than one week, he will disappoint, he will not do what they thought he would do, he will not lead in the way that they expected and they will hang him on a cross. Can can, can we just agree without going into a lot of details that um, 2020's kind of been a storm? Do you guys kind of feel that? I don't think I'm overstating anything to say that we're in stormy waters right now. Listen to Luke 6.46. See, see, what you need to do when you find yourself in a storm, you need to get to solid ground. And Luke 6.46 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against the house, uh, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who has built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. I think the truths from Luke 4 and Jesus' visits to Nazareth are important, vital, and critical for us to understand. 
we need to understand what we're looking for, first of all. We're not looking for a hero. We're looking for a savior. We don't see ourselves as the good guys looking for God to punish the bad guys. We recognize our desperate need for a physician to heal us. And then in response to that, we yield our will to what God is asking us to do and we give him and recognize the authority that has always been his to begin with. I believe days are quickly approaching when the Lord will come again. Matthew 24, verse 12, in describing what the world looks like leading up to the return of Christ, Jesus says this, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Does that kind of describe what we're seeing today? Verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do you know what it means to endure? It doesn't mean that we hear what God is asking us to do. It doesn't mean that we understand what God is asking us to do. It means that we hear what he asks us to do and we do it. That's what endurance is. These are the days of salvation. My prayer is that we find ourselves a faithful people submitting to God, submitting to his authorities, to submitting to the authorities that he has put above us confident that Jesus is coming soon and our hope is not placed in a hero but a savior and his name is Jesus in a moment Taylor's going to come out he's going to lead us in a song where we can reflect and prepare for communion and what I'd like you to reflect on is this Jesus in instructing the church in 1 Corinthians he says when you take communion examine yourselves and I think the question that we have to ask ourselves in this moment is this in remembering what Jesus did for us, are we a people that are willing to do what he's asked us to do? That's the question and the examination that we need to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for this timely word. And we thank you for Jesus. To him belongs all praise, all glory, all power, all wisdom, all majesty, all might. He is our authority. Lord, teach us to be a people that are willing to follow. Amen.